So I talk a lot about defying your destiny because I was born in the hood. I was sentenced to a boys camp when I was 12 years old for two years because I shot my stepfather. He used to beat me and my mom a lot. Embrace change, embrace positivity. I call it a tool bag, right? So the more stuff we can put in our tool bag, the more we have the option to take the right tool out at the right moment. And that's what we need. Welcome to the Unlocking Happiness podcast. I'm Amy Dix, international best-selling author, speaker, and founder of Choose Happy. Collectively, our community builds a better world. I believe life is made up of moments. We have short moments, long moments, good moments, and bad moments. We make sure that all of your life moments are filled with meaning and joy. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest on the internet happiest podcast. Now let's unlock happiness. Here with us today is David Armstrong, author of Why Me, and also the creator and founder of Unlimited Potential. David, welcome to Unlocking Happiness. Thank you so much, Amy. I appreciate that. And I appreciate being here with all your listeners. Awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about, you talk a lot about redefining your destination. And I'm curious, like, what did you think your destination was at one point? And when was the defining moment when you realized that that is not indeed your destination? Absolutely. If you, if you can't see, I have a nice poster that I had printed up with me. That's, that's me facing down of all the Kalamata, Greece. So that's where I decided to retire is, is Greece. And then we've been here for a couple of years in Kalamata and home of the olive oils and olives, right? So all of those trees that you see there in the picture, all that green is all olive trees. It's amazing. amazing. And so I, I talk about defying your destiny and a, a lot, a whole lot, because, you know, when you're born, you're just kind of born into whatever. You have no idea, no control. It just is. And so if you're born in a war-torn country, for example, Syria, if you're born into an influent uh, family, like the Trumps, I think, but <laughs> or Bill Gates. <laughs> so you're just kind of born and that's just it. And, and so sometimes... When, as we grow up, we don't like what we're born into. So we need to defy mm -hmm. our destiny and your destiny. I don't want to say is pre-written, but it sure, a lot of that paragraph is done. You know, a lot of that is just, you know, the way it is. And so wherever you're born, uh, whatever ethnicity, whatever country, all of that stuff is not controlled by you. What is controlled by you is what ends up happening, that trajectory that you end up taking in life. And so I talk a lot about defying your destiny because I was grow I was born in the hood in, in Los Angeles. I ended up uh, doing a lot of bad stuff. My first arrest was when I was 11 years old for armed robbery, 11 years old for wow. 
armed robbery. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's in the book. And so, you know what? Not, not trying to promote the book right now, but. Oh, let's promote the book. <laughs> let's promote it. <laughs> oh, why me? My fight for life by Dave Armstrong. Get yeah. it now. Look, the truth is I'm big on proof. And so I have the arrest report. I was lucky enough to get some of the, uh, some of my juvenile records. So I have the arrest report in here. So no joke. 11 years old, armed robbery. And I mean, anyone that can tell you that probably has a specific destiny that they're going to end up continuing on that path. And, and that's just an unfortunate statistic. It's just, you know, unfortunate that I think it's 425,000 kids in the United States are in foster care. Of those kids, and I was one of them, I was in in and out of juvenile detention, foster homes, boys camps, boys homes, all kinds of stuff. And my mom died when I was about 13 years old. I was left without anyone. So I didn't have any family whatsoever. So here it is, you know, here I am 13 years old and uh, just alone abandoned. And, and that's exactly how you feel when you're that age, especially, and you have no one. I, I was void of everything, absent of feelings, of love, of care. It, it just was a big void. Okay. So you're, let's paint this picture a little bit. So <laughs> you're 13 years old. That's young, obviously. Yeah. Your mom dies. And tell us, was it instant? Did it happen over time? Like, what was that moment? Yeah, it was instant. I'll share a story. You know, I believe in a higher power. I don't know what that higher power is. And it depends on who you are and what part of the world you grew up in and as to how you define that higher power. But it was really weird. I was so I was sentenced to a boys camp when I was 12 years old for two years. And so without belaboring the answer, the boys camp sentencing was because I shot my stepfather. He used to beat me and my mom a lot, like a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. And so one day I decided to shoot him with his gun. I ended up not killing him. Uh, You know, it was fine. Well, fine. I ended up getting sentenced to a boys camp for two years, but it took me away from that environment. So it was a good and bad thing because I I still loved my mom, even though, you know, I blamed her a lot for what happened. She was an alcoholic. She just wasn't okay. She wasn't a good mom, unfortunately, but I still loved her. She was my mom, you know, Of course. I didn't like my stepdad because he would beat me and her all the time. So I get sentenced to this boys camp. And I used to come home on the weekends on visits. And one weekend, I don't know why, I decided not to leave. So I used to, on Sunday mid-afternoon, if I recall, I would have to get on a bus and go back uh, about an hour and a half to the boys' camp. And I, I didn't leave. I didn't get on the bus. And for some reason, something was pulling me not to leave. Something was just like, like a gravitate gravitational pull. You know, you're trying to jump up in the air, but every time you just Mm -hmm. it pulled down to, down to the ground. Mm -hmm. And I go, I I don't know why, but I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. So I told my mom, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. And she says, well, they're going to come get you. You're going to get in trouble. I don't care. I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. So I didn't leave. And a day later, if I recall a day or two later, they, they ended up coming to get me, my social worker. And I'll never forget my social worker, Deborah Bowser coming to the school and getting me from school 
during the week. So she came, got me from the house. I, you know, I was in trouble and then I was in school during the week or maybe the following week. And you, you remember back in the day, they would ring the, the front office would ring the, the, the classroom. Mrs. So-and-so please send Mr. Armstrong to the front office. Sure. Yeah. You remember that? To the speaker. Yeah. The yeah. 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 <laughs> Scared the hell out of you. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so, I heard that. Send Mr. Armstrong to the front. I said, oh boy, I'm in trouble again. Okay. I don't know what I did, but I'm in trouble. So I get my stuff, go to the front office and then I'm waiting. They said, oh, your social workers come to pick you up. Okay. I don't know what I did, but okay. So I remember Deborah walking down a, a walkway to the, to the doors of the front office. And I was sitting there and I, I, I saw her as she's walking and she had the most somber look on her face. Mm-hmm. Just and I said, boy, something's, you know, you get that feeling like in your gut, something's off, like something's not okay. You can see somebody and, and you know, they're, they're, something's heavy on their heart. So Deborah comes and gets me and she says, Dave, we got to go see your mom. I go, okay. And she says, look, your mom's in the hospital. She had a stroke and they don't expect her to be okay. So she might die. And I remember the hour, hour and a half drive over to where my, where, where I live, where my mom is, uh, was, and I just felt like, well, this can't be real. Like everything's going to be okay. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not a big deal. We get there to the hospital and this is the last time I laid eyes on my mom. I, I couldn't even go to the funeral. We get, get there we get into the room. She's hooked up to a bunch of, you know, tubes and stuff. And I didn't know what the heck was really going on. And then all of a sudden she starts convulsing, and her eyes oh. back of her head. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And they shoot, shoot me and, and Deborah, my, my social worker out of the room. And then I see them going to her and stuff. And then, then we leave and I didn't want to go back. I just, I didn't want, I just, I was like, I can't, I don't want to, I don't want to see her. I don't want, I, I just want to leave. So we left and she died. If I recall a few days later and I declined to even go to the funeral. I just felt like if I avoided it, maybe it wasn't true. Maybe it wasn't my reality because I knew what what her passing away meant. I would be alone, like literally, absolutely, totally alone in this big world at 13 years old. So it was weird that I decided to stay that weekend. And that that was out of character for some reason. I, I never did that before that moment. And it was sudden. You know, she didn't, she didn't have any health issues that I, that I knew of. I mean, I was a kid and I wasn't even there, but everything seemed fine that weekend from what I can remember. And then I wanted to stay, I stayed, and then she passed away shortly after. Mm -hmm. So that's the last memory you have as your, um, of your mom seeing her in that, um, state. And I, I would imagine not only is that very traumatic at age 13, but also maybe very confusing at age 13. Yeah, yeah. And so you say you, you, you knew that you were going to be all alone if the imminent 
were to happen, which it did. What do you mean by all alone? You have no brothers and sisters. You have no other family. Talk to us about why you felt so alone after that. So no, no family other than a sister, uh, who I found out was a half sister, but she was much older than I was like a lot older. And so she was out of the house and I hadn't seen her for years after she left the house. So I, 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 I remember her leaving and not being back in our lives when I was seven or eight or nine, something like that. But, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, 12, 11, 12 years old, she was definitely not in the picture at all. And I had no idea why, you know, I, I would ask, I would assume, and, you know, my mom would give me whatever answer. I don't really sure. know, but <laughs> wasn't in the picture. And, and I didn't have any, it, it, we didn't have any contact with any of my family. I remember when we were younger, when I was younger, like five or so, six, something like that us going to relatives house. I had an uncle that we were, you know, around and stuff, but I think after she met my stepfather somewhere in that period, she just lost contact with all of our family. Mm -hmm. And so I knew, I knew that they just weren't in the picture. And, and even after I remember, even after she died, I, I was hopeful that one of them would say, Hey, Dave, come with us. You know, I, I was, I remember being hopeful plenty of times throughout my, my childhood and I didn't reconnect. I found my sister, um, about two years ago now, uh, my half sister. And so I didn't reconnect with her until about two years ago or so. And like I said, she was much older. So I'm 47 right now. And she's like 20 years older than me, if not a little more, I think 22 years older than me. And as of recent, since uh, probably about five months ago, I've lost contact with her. And I think that she came down with COVID, uh, not think, I know she had COVID and, and then all of a sudden she's disappeared. And you can't find her. No, no. She has a daughter that I tried to message and her daughter refuses to, to respond back and stuff. It's unfortunate, but um Nothing. So, so not only did you feel very alone in this world, but physically you were alone in this oh, world. Yeah. 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 Uh, so it sounds like your mom had a little bit of a challenging life, but what's the greatest lesson that she taught you? Oh, <laughs> nobody's ever asked me that, Amy. The greatest <laughs> lesson that she's taught me, you know, I hate to say this, but nothing. Look, the, the truth is, I mean, she just wasn't a good, good parent. And I don't know why I'm, I was way too young to, to try to deduce exactly what the deal was. Um, she had no control over me. Uh, I, I was really bad. We, you know, she allowed me to be abused allowed. I, I, I understand circumstances surrounding that, but so I can't say that I could deduce anything directly from her. Mm -hmm. However, I do say this, I wouldn't change a single solitary thing about my life. Nothing, not, not even a, se a split second of my past, because I know who I am today and all that I've accomplished and all that I've been able to give back. And that's the important part for me. I wake up every day thinking, how could I help someone else become better or to think a little differently or to transcend their destiny, to just go, go beyond what they, they were just 
born into. And, and so I'm, I'm fortunate. I've, I've been able to impact thousands of people in a positive way. And, and it's funny, my, my goal this year, Amy, so everybody has a uh, new year's resolution. So for me, it's not really losing 10 pounds. It's uh, to, to impact 1 million people in a positive way. That's my, my new year's goal. I think you're well on your way to that. And <laughs> with your personality type, I'm sure you absolutely will crush that goal. <laughs> fashion. I hope I crush it and achieve 2 million, but we'll see. I'm, yeah. I'm, we'll see. You're helping me do that right now. So you're helping be with my goal right this second. So thank you. Awesome. I love it. I love it. So it sounds like <laughs> you also had a little bit of a challenge with yourself. You know, you considered yourself a, you said you did really bad things. And so there was some behavioral stuff obviously going on there. I mean, what happens? Like you are a changed man at this point, right? So how does somebody go from like this bad, if you will, I'm just going to use that word, a uh, bad child to where you are today, a motivational speaker, a motivational author, a best-selling author, uh, somebody who gives back, has started programs, been on nonprofit boards. Like how does that happen? Right. God, I love hearing that. Oh <laughs> I don't, I don't toot my own horn, but man, when somebody else does it, it feels good. Words of affirmation <laughs> might be your love language. I don't I know. <laughs> Right back at oh, you. <laughs> boy, oh boy, how do you? You know what? The the truth is change daily. How about that? Just I I've I've been so fortunate to be able to embrace change, embrace positivity, embrace reality, you know, not this this uh notion of everything's going to be okay when things are not, you know, but really figuring out how to make things okay in life. And, um, and the truth is I had some good people in my life. I had a martial arts instructor who was like a father to me. So he was my surrogate dad, Sensei Otto Johnson, who unfortunately has passed away. And then Ron Barnick, who was a guardian at Lightham. And so a guardian at Lightham, I know a lot of people don't know what that is. It's a court appointed special advocate, so CASA. And so the judge will say, or your social worker and the judge will say, we need someone to be almost like a big brother to this kid. Okay. Somebody to, to see him, take him out a little bit to make sure that he's in the right foster home or boys home or boys camp, make sure that things are okay. So for example, they placed me one time in a, in a boys home and in boys homes, there's usually between nine and 12 kids, they're boys. And uh, they placed me in a boy's home with another kid that was in a rival gang. So I was a crip and he was a blood. And that that's just stupid. Like anyone that's, that's placed, <laughs> that's just, you know, that's like, come on. Right. And, and I don't know if somebody was trying to, to, you know, to prove a point, like we could get them to all get along, but it wasn't <laughs> happening with us. And so we would consistently fight. And all the time, just fight, fight, fight. And um, so he, you know, Ron would go back to the judge and my social worker and say, look, you guys have Dave in this placement. And 
we need to get him out or get the other kid out, stuff like that. Well, Ron was also in the Air Force. He was a pilot, pilot in the Air Force. And he would bring me over to his house and I, I would see things from all over the world in his house. Little trinkets, you know, like like this. Oh, these all of this stuff is from all over the world. Actually, I got stuff from Hawaii. I got stuff from Greece. I got stuff from Colorado. That's Italy. So anyways, uh, not bragging. I'm just saying when I saw these things in his house, Amy, I was like, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know why something. And I, I, I talk a lot of with my clients about aha moments, right? We, we just, the more you do, the more you try, the more people you talk to, the more things that you expose yourself to, you're going to have that aha moment several times. He was my aha moment for joining the air force, which after I served 24 years and got to travel all over the world. And, and so Ron would bring me to his house and I would see this stuff from all over the world and just, just be so like wowed by it. Right. Wowed. And it made me want to join the air force to be able to do the same thing. Amazing. And so if it wasn't for Ron and my martial arts instructor, right. Who, who actually choked me out before he started training me, Right. And, and then, yeah, <laughs> he was a, he was a psychiatrist at one of the, the a therapists at one of the boys homes that I was at. Okay. And I was always a smart kid. I don't know why. So I was clever for some reason, just some innate ability, some innate trait, even, and this, this is also in the book. I found a report card, right. A progress report from school. And I think I was in the fourth or sixth, sixth grade, something like that. Right. And my, my teacher wrote that I was extremely bright and a natural leader, but I was leading the kids in a bad way. Hmm. And if I turn, if I turn that around, I could be a great leader. And this is when I was really young, really young. So I, for some reason was always pretty clever. And so I knew that I couldn't touch staff. Okay. So if you're in a boy's home, a boy's camp, a foster home, you can't touch the adults, right? Because then they could touch you back. And you don't want an adult restraining you. And then Sensei Otto, who's that, that guy right there, that big old black dude right here, mm-hmm. six, six, 10, 250 something pounds, right? I wasn't, I, and I'm not, and I certainly wasn't when I was 15, right? not even close. One day I, I said, I'm going to leave the home, right? And, and you can't just come and go as you please. But if you don't care, and I just didn't care, I knew the system. You right. know, if, if you leave, what are they going to do? They're, yeah, what's the worst that's going to happen? Oh, right. I'm going to have to go to another house. <laughs> I had been in so many group homes and boys homes and, and foster homes. I didn't care. I didn't care about anything. And so I said, no, I am going to leave. And Sensei Otto says, no, you're not. And he stands in front of the door. I don't know what possessed me to do this. I could have walked out the back door, jumped out a window, waited something. I don't know. I decided to put my hands on him. I tried to push him out out from in in front of the door. One, he wasn't going anywhere. Right. I wasn't pushing this big old dude. Two, I knew better. I knew that I couldn't push. I couldn't touch staff. I couldn't push him. I knew better. So he restrained me. 
Ah. <laughs> so he chokes me out. I wake up in my bedroom and I'm livid. I'm like, oh, cuz, we gonna get me and my homies gonna get you. We gonna <laughs> blast you up, cuz. We gonna blast. And, 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 and in the back of my mind, Amy, in the back of my mind, I was like, this dude is bad. Yeah. How do you do, do that? Yeah. Right? And, right. And that moment, that aha moment, made me want to start training in martial arts. So I started being good, right? Because in order to train with Sensei Auto, you got to be good, right? You got to be doing doing okay. So I started trying to, to be good and not, you know, be, you know, ditch school so much, not fight so much. And, and so I could be around him and do this martial art thing. And really, I just wanted to do martial arts because I was always fighting. I was a, a, a you know, a huge fighter and I, I wanted to fight better. The end, the end. That's it. Oh, that's, that's, that's what you it, thought. Yeah, that's what I thought. And it changed, it changed everything about me. The discipline, the respect, being around him, who was a good a mentor, a good person to be around in general. And, and, and then and he ended up taking the, the place of a, a surrogate father for me. It was that aha moment for me. It was that aha moment. And, and I ended up, you know, later on opening up my own martial arts school. I was teaching for him actually first. So I started, I was getting, you know, so good with martial arts. I was competing all over winning tournaments. And it was the first time I ever won something in my life that I achieved something. And I was, you know, people were going, good job to me. Good job. What? Really? And of course that motivates a person, you know, everyone likes that uh, external reward everyone. So, so I was like, wow, I'm good at this. First time I've ever been good at anything, you know, other than beating people up, I guess. <laughs> and, and ironically, it was beating people up that I was good at in the, in the ring, you know, and, and it just changed, it changed everything, everything for me. It, it created that aha moment that I was able to run with and turn into a profitable martial arts school myself and mentor hundreds, if not thousands of young people. I still have people and their, and their parents messaging me saying, Oh, look at little Johnny. He's still doing karate over here. He was thinking of you as he was looking through photos, sensei Dave, and thank you every for everything. Wow. You know, what a turnaround <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. So what advice do you have for people who may know somebody, like know a child that is in a challenging situation? Like how can they help? Well, first go to www.upna.net and click on the link. No, <laughs> this is what I do. I, I help parents and as well as, as social workers, foster parents, mentors, learn how to connect with their kids. Okay. Learn how to connect with their teens. And it's super important. And I talk about, I developed this program and I talk about really creating some intrinsic drive, right. in that internal drive within the teens, because at some point, Parents get, do a really bad, in general, do a really bad job of this. And, and I think I did when my kids were, were teenagers also. Mine are 25 and 26 now. And we try to, to hold on to that little kid. But at some point, that teenager is not that little kid anymore. And the parents are the worst people to try to change their mindset about their own kids. Because your span of control goes away quickly. It just, it starts diminishing as they, as they get older, 
that span of control diminishes. And so what you want to do is create a different sort of connection between you and your team, right? You want to be able to connect with them on their level, right? But, but it's more, it's less, less of a parent, like I'm, you know, like a five-year-old, I don't want you to run out into traffic. So I'm going to snatch you by your arm because I just saved your life. Right. It's more of a friend than a parent. Hey, look, you know, traffic is going to kill you and neither one of us want you to die. And because we care about life and it's really hard for parents, especially parents to really do that, to really like change that relationship that they have. So, and the truth is once it starts spiraling downhill, it's just that much harder to reconnect with him or her. It just really is. And so that's what I do. I try to get, uh, I, I, I have programs for teens and I have programs for parents or mentors or, or, or people that are, are trying to impact the teenagers lives. And I just kind of teach them how to do that. Like, it, you know, change their mindset, give them, I call it a tool bag, right? So the more stuff we can put in our tool bag, the more we have the option to take the right tool out at the right moment. And that's what we need. I think it's really important that you kind of have like this focus on either or an and, I would say, either the mm-hmm. teens or the parents or the teens and the parents. It's almost like a two-prong approach. I don't know that these kind of challenging situations may be able to be solved just through one path. So I think that that's great that you kind of work through both. You know, there's probably a lot of listeners out there that are going, well, you know, my, my kids are fine. (laughs) They're not in like a super challenging situation or I'm not in a super challenging uh, situation. However, we all can redefine our destiny. So if somebody may not be to the, that those depths, but they still want to change like the outcome of their life, they still know that they can get better than where they are now where does somebody even begin that process? Cause it can feel almost really overwhelming if you go, okay, I'm just going to do this. So how does someone just even start that process? Let me answer that in two, two parts. One, I'll speak to parents or anybody that, that is involved with teens. Okay. Even if the teen that you have, or that you're involved with, isn't bad, it, everything's okay. I'll go back to the analogy that I had with the toolkit. Sometimes just having that arsenal of tools in a bag to be able to pull out the appropriate one at the appropriate time for the appropriate teen, right? So maybe it's, it's not even your teen, it's the neighbors. And you see, well, they just had a divorce. Oh, dad just passed away. You go, well, I, I can help because I went through this program with when Sensei Dave and I have these, these tools in this tool bag and I could pull one of these out and see if it works over here. Right. So it doesn't necessarily just have to be about you. That's the first part of the answer. The second part is, you know, the positive mindset world, the life coaching world, the the world of I'm going to make you better is so inundated. It's talk about where to where to go, where to start, who to Mm -hmm. trust is what you got to start. 
Who, mm-hmm. who in the world do you trust? Because there's opposing thought processes, there's opposing ideas, there's opposing personalities. And you're like, is it Tony Robbins or Dave? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, okay. and, yeah. And yeah. And, and if you have a million bucks, it's Tony Robbins. That's right. <laughs> I don't charge that much. <laughs> it's so hard. When I decided to be a life coach, I had a friend of mine approach me and he says, I really want to start mentoring men. And I want you to help me with this thing. I want to go into business with you. And I said, sure, let's do it. I, I was retired already. I was in Greece on the beach, sipping my mojitos, (laughs) hanging out with friends, drinking coffee. I didn't need to work, but I I felt a void because I had been giving back for so long and helping people for so long in so many different ways that after taking two years off, I felt a little weird, you know, Mm because I have so much that I'm able to give back. So what did I do? I said, okay, I'm going to be a life coach. What, how do I do that? I didn't know anything really about life coaching other than, you know, some motivational speakers and stuff that I see on TV. And I said, I want to be the best life coach and the best motivational speaker. And I had been speaking for a long time uh, before, but I said, I want to be the best. Okay. How do I do that? So I start digging around the internet and boy, you know, Google loves us because it gives us a million options. And I said, this field of life coaching is so unregulated. Yeah. Oh boy. And I really didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to start. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I looked at some of the big name, you know, license, not license. I hate to call it licensing certification programs that, that there's some big not named life coaching programs. They're not schools. I'm really big into school. I love school. And so they're not universities. They're just correct. They're just certification programs. Just certification. Yeah. Yeah. And they range from 35 bucks to 35,000. And I kid you not, no joke. And so I go, okay, nothing should have such a great disparity in it. Like that, the disparity of, of, of the quality or the price or whatever. It makes no sense. It just made no logical sense to me. And so I said, what, what can I do? I'm going to go get a psychology degree because that's what life coaching is. I'm, I, I, so I, I found at Liberty university, not plugging them. They don't know who I am really. They just know that I was a student. <laughs> um, Liberty university had a psychology degree with an emphasis in life coaching. I thought, oh, yes. So that's what I went and did. And I learned a a tremendous amount, tremendous amount. But then you have to combine what you learn with what you've done. Right. Right. What you've overcome and how you overcome that. And then you have to combine all of that stuff with how well do you articulate that to someone else? And how, how do you as a coach shift how you articulate that between one person and another, because none of us are the same. Right. I think this is really an important topic to talk about that you kind of surfaced here because there are so many people out there that, you know, call themselves a life coach. And and I'm not here to take that away from anyone. I think from the perspective of the student that you just have to be very, very cautious in understanding what that means when some 
somebody says it. And, you know, if they have accreditations or, or credentials, if that's important to you, then, then you should ask those questions. Uh, I am a hundred percent with you. Like I believe in science backed approaches, which is why I go down the road of positive psychology. And I just think people need to be careful because if I experienced something in my life and I overcame it, all of a sudden I can say, well, I'm a life coach. I'll help you overcome it. But here's the thing. Everyone is so different. So at that point, I can only tell you how I did it. It does not mean I love you. (laughs) It's true though. It does not mean that you're going to get through it just because I got through it. Like you have a different personality type than what I do. Our brains are wired differently. So if I'm going to help you go from A to Z, let's look at the science. Let's look at the psychology. Let's look at how our brains work. Let's understand emotional intelligence. Let's understand your personality type. All of those things have to be in my opinion. (laughs) I don't care about this. Hashtag fact. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I just think Again, I'm not here to take it away from anyone if if somebody is out there doing that. All I am saying is I think we need to be really, really careful as students, as mentees on who we choose if we are going down that road. And look, if somebody got over something, went from A to Z and you want to go from A to Z, you like their approach and you're confident they can take you from A to Z because maybe it is such a similar situation. Have at it. Like if you're going to improve yourself, you go for it. (laughs) I want, I want to encourage everyone to improve themselves. And if they can find someone to help them, awesome. I just think that there needs to be more awareness in the industry of life coaching and what that means and who, you know, who says it and why they say that they're a life coach. Yeah. I, we're on the same page when yes. I, I'm telling you, when I, when I started getting into this, I thought, this is a two, it's a $2 billion industry. That's right. And so there's some people making a lot of money from a lot of other people. And, and I take what I do with human beings pretty seriously. Right. Oh, there's nothing actually more serious to me in my life than, than people. And I've had a kid in my mentoring, I had a mentoring program for at-risk youth, kids that were in uh, juvenile hall, that foster homes and group homes would come to my martial arts school and we would have mentoring sessions and, you know, physical stuff, you know, martial arts and stuff and trying, try to sell that to the state. That's, that was a hard sell. <laughs> but um, I had a kid that literally developed schizophrenia on me, like, mm on my watch. And I had no idea what that was. Like I knew what schizophrenia was, but I had no, you know, the textbook definition and that was it. So something was wrong with him. And I'm like, Whoa, this guy's not okay. And you know, he ended up in a mental hospital after being picked up on the road in the snow, but naked. Hmm. And, and that really opened my eyes. I go, wow. 
there's a lot of, I mean, we're human beings. There's so many things. There's so many factors. Right. And oh, I hate to use a, use a bad word. You'd be an idiot. I hate to use idiot, but you're lying to yourself as a coach. If you think that, that you're going to help all 7 billion people. That's right. Well said. Yes. And I have friends (laughs) that are coaches that I refer people to. I I will, if you come to me and I go, maybe you need a little more gentle approach with life. I see that you're in a vulnerable place and the way I coach is not gentle. It's very like, this is what is proven to work. And if you're going to like get yourself out of a rut, or if you're going to connect with your team, or if you're going to dot, 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 these set of things work. Now let's figure out how we, and so I'm more of a, Oh, I don't want to say in your face, but I'm more direct. I'm, sure. I, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a touchy feely, you know, go meditate for two hours and think right. about it for two weeks type of coach. I'm, I'm a, let, let's take action. Like if you're not taking action, I'm in your butt going, Hey, yep. and, and then I will actually say at some point, if I see that, that you're not taking action, maybe there's somebody better suited to you and your style of learning and the way that you you'd like to, to receive this stuff in your life. Let me refer you to somebody else. And all the coaches that I know have a free session, including me, Let's figure it out for free first. That's right. Yeah. I'm curious. How do you define happiness? Oh, I love this question. How do I (laughs) define happiness? When you can look at yourself in the mirror and smile. I love that. Really smile. Not BS smile. Don't BS yourself. (laughs) Don't don't smile. Like don't, don't do Instagram smile. You know, (laughs) selfie smile. Oh, (laughs) selfie. Best life, YOLO. Oh gosh, I'm so depressed. No, when you can look in the mirror, naked, naked. Listen to me, Amy. Look into the mirror with a long mirror, right? Naked and smile. The happiness. The end. The end. Because you, you, you know, when you're truthful with yourself, you know when you have areas to improve and when you don't. You know if those areas transcend into your happiness or if they will just help your happiness once they're they're improved, right? You know these things. I love that. Okay, so now the last question here is one that I ask all the guests and it's a two-part question. So the first question is, uh, if you only had seven more days left to live, what would you do? Uh, nothing differently. Keep living day to day as, yeah, as exactly, you are exactly now. what I'm doing. Yeah. That, so this is a personal thing. I try to live my life as I'm di- as if I'm dying tomorrow. I don't BS. I look at myself in the mirror naked and tell myself <laughs> like, no, I really, I'm fortunate, Amy. Everyone can't, can't do that. And that's, a, I get it. And I haven't always been in that, in that place where I could say, no, nothing would change. You know, there, there's been times in my life where I'd say, well, I'd do this or that or the other, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. I would, I'd be doing exact, I'd be doing this interview today. If I was dying next week, you know, uh, everything that I'm doing, because I wake up and I go, I want to impact 1 million people today in a positive way. That's why I wake up. You know, it's not for me. I didn't write the book for me, even though it's weird. I say this, I did not write this book for me and it's, it's about me, but it, it's not about me. <laughs> right. No, it's I, your I story. Want, transcendent. It's my story but, 
but the, the, the truth is I put a lot of uh, nuggets of advice in here between each chapter is some applicable nuggets of advice for people that has to do with that, that chapter. I really wanted people to get the most from my story, not just hearing me say it or reading me say it. I wanted them to get like the absolute most I could offer somebody with what I've been through. Um, awesome. Keep on keeping on, keep on doing what you're doing, keep right? On, you, you just keep on living the way that you're living. Awesome. I don't know that everyone would say that or could say that. So that says a lot about what you're doing in life. The second part of that question is if you only had seven more days left to live, but you were in a debilitated state. So essentially you would just be laying in a bed dying and you couldn't get up and walk. You know, all you have left is your voice. What is the last bit of advice? that you want to give the world? Mm, the last bit of advice, I would say that your destiny is, is not something that has to be. And no matter where you are today, you can be where you want to be tomorrow. And everyone on this planet has that ability. And some may have to deal with, put up with, go through a lot more than others, but you have the ability. You can, you might have to make a lot of sacrifices. You might have to do things that you didn't think you could do, develop yourself to the point where you could only imagine you being that person, but you deserve the best life, your ideal life. And again, don't come, don't look around the room and compare your life with someone else's, what they had to go through compared to what you have to go through. Cause it might, you might have to go through a lot more, you know, if you were born in Syria and you need to get the hell out of Syria, that's a lot different than you being born in, you know, Malibu, a lot different. And you want to, you know, you want to do something with your life. So, yes. so don't compare yourself, but you can, you can, and there's people that have, so I know you can, because there's someone else that came from the same situation that you came from. I don't want to say better or worse, right? I want to compare apples to apples, same situation that came from Syria, left Syria, went somewhere else, went somewhere else, did something with their lives, right? Uh, I, there's billionaires that had nothing in the bank before they became billionaires how much you're going to have to deal with and do and change and go through. That's the, that's the part that's up for debate, whether or not you're going to have the tenacity, the stick to itness, the character that you develop to do it. That's a different story. I love that. Everyone deserves their ideal life, as you put it. And no matter where you are today, does not mean that that's where you have to be tomorrow. David, thank you so much for being on the show. If people want to find you, give us both of your websites. So the book again, Why Me? My Fight for Life by Dave Armstrong, David Armstrong. And the website for the book, which will take you to Amazon. The, the, the book is available on Amazon, but the website for the book is whyme.world. So www.whyme.world. And then if you're interested in coaching, you want to see if it's a good fit or if you're interested in any of the programs that I'm doing, I really like group programs. So I'm developing several group programs right now because that way I can impact a, a larger audience, but not huge groups like 200 people. Like I'm, I'm limiting to, to 20 people and that's it. 
And so my website, www.upna.net, unlimitedpotentialnetwork.net. That's it. David, thank you so much for unlocking happiness with us today. My pleasure. Thank you and your audience for having me and listening. I appreciate you guys. Amy Dix here. Thank you so much for listening to Unlocking Happiness. I hope you loved the show. And if you did, post a link to your social media, tag a friend, and hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. Help spread more happiness in the world by leaving us a review. If you would like to learn more about what we do, visit choose-happy.me. And if you want to be a future guest, click on the podcast tab to learn more. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Unlocking Happiness with Amy Dix. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and hit subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean the world to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, choose-happy.me, or join our Facebook group called The Happiest Group on Facebook. Thanks for listening. This is Amy Dix, and we will see you next time.